Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wolverine 24-7 Podcast, your audio source for all things Michigan football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm Zach Shaw. Steve Lorenz on the phone with me. Actually, or he's just right next to me based on how we record it. But regardless, talking about Michigan's 45-14 win over, at the time, number 8 Notre Dame. Michigan's second top 10 win in the last 11 years. It is their first win in 15 tries as an underdog. Technically, they might not have been an underdog, so maybe that stat's not as relevant. But still, we were talking right before the show. This is the first first podcast we've had, really, of 2019, if you're thinking about football, that had a positive tone toward Michigan, and it it was merited, not projecting. So... First real chest-pounding win that didn't have any skepticism. This is this is a big win. I was thinking about this. Well, stay tuned later on for, for later on in the segment. I'm going to ask about best wins this decade. But uh, first, we're going to do our traditional format. Two game balls, four t- lasting takeaways, and then seven questions either from the listeners or a couple that I thought of as well. Uh, but first, we can start with game balls. Steve, I usually throw it to you for this. Who's getting your game ball this week? Uh, Cesar Ruiz is going to be my pick. They're I think again, yeah, in a forty-five to fourteen. I really, you know, basically, basically forty-five to zip. I, you know, they Notre Dame should not have had the ball on the possession that they scored a touchdown, and then the other one was in junk time. I mean, it was a uh, butt kicking. I guess this is we're not really R. I guess we got to go PG thirteen on it, but. Um, I go with Ruiz. Really, kind of Michigan up front set the tone for the entire game. And again, like this is sort of how we expected Michigan's offensive line to play throughout the year. Even with that, though, I mean they dominated Notre Dame to a level that I don't think we thought they could. As far as when you consider, you know, top ten team. Could Michigan? Could we have projected Michigan to win that battle up front? Absolutely, but I mean, this was a dominant effort. Made life easier for the backs. Made life easier for Patterson. Just and you know Ruiz especially too. I think by most accounts is, has probably not had the year that many thought he was going to have. Definitely not the year I thought he'd have. I mean, I've always been really high on him. He looked amazing. I mean, it was definitely the best game he's played this year. Maybe the best game he's ever had at Michigan. Which you know he's had some good games in the past. So. I'm going to give it to him. Could be a lot of other guys. I think Jalen Mayfield also really played his, easily played his best game uh, at right tackle. Hassan Haskins. I mean, there's a lot of guys you could you could go down the list in, the, in a game like this. But uh, I'm going to give it to Ruiz as far as maybe being the tone setter up front for Michigan. Sure. I'm going to keep it on the offensive side. That's not, you know, Cameron Grown probably just as deserving as anybody. Uh, 12 tackles. We were looking before the show. He had 12 tackles. No one else on the team had more than five. So he was really just someone that was everywhere for them. And so, uh, but that said, I'm going to go, oh, I will go with Hassan Haskins. It's between him and Charbonnet for me. Uh, Real quick note on Charbonnet. He actually is second among true freshman running backs in rushing yards so far this season and first among true freshman running backs in rushing touchdowns. He's also second in the Big Ten period with rushing touchdowns behind 
behind Jonathan Taylor, tied with J.K. Dobbins and Justin Fields. But still, if you're if you have as many rushing touchdowns as J.K. Dobbins and Justin Fields, and you're just behind Jonathan Taylor, uh, you are you are off to a very promising start. He's someone that there was there's a lot of hype around him, and everyone knows his name. But I think I think after the Wisconsin game, things kind of cooled, or at least discussions about like how good he is or how good he could be kind of cooled. He hasn't had too many 100-yard games, but you know, 80 plus yards against Penn State and 70 plus in two touchdowns against Notre Dame is notable. That said, after all that, I'm gonna have a much less emphatic thing for Haskins. Uh, but no, he had a fantastic game: 149 yards rushing, no touchdowns. But you know, that 49-yard run that he had, I think that that really kept. Not a game saver because I think Michigan still would have won, but that was when th- things were kind of tight. The students were throwing towels on the field. Uh, there were a lot of boo birds out. It was just kind of a it was a disgruntled atmosphere. And then he goes out there and runs for forty nine yards, and everyone's back to normal. I think I think that's pretty relevant. Uh, I really like how he does not seem to go down on first wrap up, which is you know there's a lot of college running backs who do that, but. But it's a, it's an exceptional skill, and it's something that, I mean, how many, I, I'd have to go back and watch the film, but how many of his yards came after contact? I'm guessing more than half of them. And so, uh, you know, he, he gets the tough yards. He can, he can bust it outside. Really quick feet. Maybe question for the offseason is how do, they, how do they make sure that these positional converts, <laughs> you know, could they have used him at running back last year? I, I, I know Karan Higdon and Chris Evans were fine, but I don't know. He looks he looks very good for basically might as well be a true freshman because he wasn't playing running back last year. So Michigan's got two freshmen at running back, and they're off to really nice starts. Um, other candidates? Hmm, Sainer still? But... Yeah, yeah. Shea Patterson, I think, did a nice yep. job of controlling the game and and avoiding mistakes, and then and then you can factor in, uh, you know, we mentioned Brad Hawkins is someone, even if it's not big on the box score, uh, he had a nice game, Quiddy Pay. Glasgow, you know, helping. Glasgow again, I thought yep. played really well. Yeah, yeah, Glasgow, I think he's, what, 12th in the Big Ten in tackles right now? Yeah, uh, yeah he's 12th in the Big Ten in tackles, 12th in sacks, and... Um, doesn't rank quite quite as highly in tackles for loss, but that's okay. Uh, anyway, lots of candidates, of course, because of the game. But we can move on to our four takeaways. I wrote my two. And obviously, Steve, you'll have your two as well, but I'll, I'll go first. Um, you know, this offense really is hitting its stride. <laughs> we laughed about it when Jim Harbaugh mentioned it against Iowa. But since then, they faced Illinois, Penn State, and Notre Dame. They've averaged about 447 yards of offense, 36 points per game, uh, 6.2 yards per play. Those are above average, not elite numbers. But if you factor in who they're playing and where they were before, that really is quite a lot of progress to have midseason. And some of it's expected. It was a new coordinator. But at the same time, I think against Iowa, who, who, by the way, Iowa now suddenly is, what, six nationally in defensive yards allowed per game. So it's, you know, even that game kind of looks forgivable. But 
I think through the first month of the season, I don't think anybody was expecting them to turn it around this quickly. And they scored more points on Notre Dame than Notre Dame has allowed since 2016, which to me, you know, we, we've done a few of those stats where, like, Michigan's defense held X opponent to their lowest blank statistic since, you know, in this many years, that many years. You don't always see that with the offense. So I think the offense really is making a lot of progress. Of course, the run game is the major component of that. But I really think Shea Patterson's played a lot better, too. I think he's, you know, I haven't haven't seen too many plays where I felt like his decision-making was haywire the past couple weeks. And and the yards aren't there. I think he only threw for 100 yards on, on Saturday. But, of course, that was rainy. On the road, I think if we had given game balls last week, I think he would have gotten one, at least from me, because of the kind of game that he played. And then Illinois, you know, was not perfect the entire way, but had that key drive, which several players have referenced as kind of a little bit of a a breakthrough for Shea. He was able to run the ball, throw the ball. So, yeah, he's been very good the past couple weeks. That plays a big role. And actually, you could probably go right down the list. Other than maybe wide receiver, every offensive position group is better than they were at the beginning of the month, like noticeably so. We talked about the offensive line growing, the running backs have gotten a lot better, and the quarterback has. And tight end, you feel, you feel probably more confident in that group than, than you did in August or October, September, the other one. <laughs> you feel more confident after October than you did before, I don't know if they've been noticeably better, but they have more pieces. They have a little bit more depth, and there's, I think there's more different types of plays that can get the tight ends involved. So that's my first takeaway is that I really think the offense, we laughed at Jim Harbaugh at, at the time, but he was kind of right. The offense has hit its stride a little bit. There's, there's plenty to, of progress to still be made, but I don't know how you can argue with um, what they, how many yards did they end up having? 437 yards in mostly rainy, either rainy or blowout conditions against Notre Dame. That's about as about as good as it gets. Steve, what's what's your first lasting takeaway? Well, and yeah, 303 yards rushing too in a game where you knew you were gonna have like, you know what I mean? You talk about the passing stats being a little down because of the weather uh, to run for 300 plus yards against a good defense like Notre Dame. Uh, in, a, in a scenario where, you know, a defense is probably going to be expecting a team to run the ball more than throw the ball, at least if you're going to have any success. I mean, the thought was really impressive. Uh, my one, my first one goes back to what we talked about post Penn State. You know, we talked about this a little bit before we got on. Is you know, one of the things we talked about was, you know, Michigan how they respond after losing to Penn State, a game in which you know probably realistically ended any of their goals, their major goals for the season as far as the Big Ten title, national, any national aspirations at all, and how how Michigan would come out against Notre Dame would maybe be a reflected or reflection on the staff and and how well this these kids respond to this staff. So I think we have to give Harbaugh and, and company a lot of credit for how Michigan came out. You know, they 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 did. I mean, it's 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 almost weird to to kind of look back and watch that game again to just think about how 
badly Michigan dominated this game. Like I said, one junk touchdown. You know, the Notre Dame had 180 total yards. 75 of them were on the final drive of the game in junk time. You know, that's 105 mm-hmm. total yards. It's insanity. You know, again, is Nor- I, I, I mean, we picked Michigan to win this game. Michigan, different team at home. But this is still a team that took Georgia to the brink in Athens and, you know, still have every, had everything in front of them heading into this game. I mean, that they, they could have won out, had a decent shot at something, you know. if a couple, They probably needed a couple breaks, but, you know, this is a mm-hmm. team that had everything at stake still, and Michigan just whooped them in every, every facet of the game. Uh, so I think, you know, where the coaches deserve criticism when things go bad. I mean, we were hard on Don Brown after the Penn State game, some of the schematic stuff with Hamler, you have to give the staff as a whole a, a ton of credit for the way Michigan responded on Saturday. Because now you can look at it and say, you know, now there's some building blocks for the rest of the year, at least headed into the, the season finale. I mean, Michigan State looks as beatable as I've ever seen a Michigan State team look under Mark D'Antonio right now. Now they still have Indiana, I think, is going to be a – that's always a weird game, you know, but – but Hold that thought. We're going to talk about those things yeah, in a little so, bit. But that's, you know, my biggest thing is, is is this was a building block, and I think a lot of it, and the way Michigan came out is a, a real reflection on the coaches and the job that they did in getting these guys back up for this game. I think it was a really – game plan was obviously A+, plus, but execution was on a different level for them on Saturday, and, that, and that, that's as much, you know, that's a, a synthesis between the players and coaches that – sometimes isn't there when the chips are maybe down or, or when the, you know, when the stakes of the season aren't the same as they were. Yeah. Yeah. And and I know Jim gave a lot of credit to the players for the response, but you're right. Someone has to coach the practices and, and I think it's, it's a two, it's a, know, two they have si- a lot of young coaches. Yeah. It's a two sided coin, right? I mean, it's, it's the yeah. players deserve as much of the credit as the coaches do, but you know, if Michigan had come out flat on Saturday, or if they had lost, we wouldn't be levying nearly the amount of criticism at the players as we probably would the staff, you know, and saying that these guys can't, you know, the players aren't respond, the players didn't respond, they've checked out, you know, and if that had been, if that had happened, you know, we'd be ragging on the staff, you know, so it's a, it's a two sided coin there. I mean, both both sides have to come together, but uh, like I said, I'm I'm going off of what we said after the game last week and saying that. How they'd come out, I think, would be what I thought would be a reflection on the staff, and you mm-hmm. see how they came out. So, you know, if I'm following my own argument here, I have to say that the staff did a hell of a job in doing it, getting them ready. Yeah, yeah, a lot of reasons to not to come out flat, and and they didn't, they didn't, and that's really, really relevant. And we'll talk a little bit about the context in one of the questions that we have. Um, my my second takeaway. You kind of took the one that I wrote about on Sunday, but I think the defense, and I'll have a story on this, I think the defense is hitting, an, uh, it sounds almost the exact same as hitting its stride. The defense's speed is better than last year. Is that is that crazy to no, say? I, I mean, don't... it just felt like, it felt like they were able to close out on so many things. Camera grown 12 tackles is a big part of that. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, Notre Dame ran, what, 60 plays? I know 12 tackles isn't exactly 
means he made the tackle in one out of five plays, but it's he was in on a lot of them. It's I think he's a big part of that. Glasgow has a lot of speed at, at linebacker, a converted safety. You know, Brad Hawkins, I think, really good speed on run plays. I almost want to go back and look and see more of his coverage on Hamler to see if that was speed or preparedness because it just seemed like he was able to, to close out on things. It is worth noting Notre Dame lost its starting running back to injury after the first half. But, I mean, all these receivers, they were all covered. You know, there were a couple instances I remember guys being open. But, yeah, it just felt like felt like every angle, felt like every opportunity Notre Dame almost had for a big play. Michigan closed out on it. I think they had, what, two plays over 20 yards in the entire game? Yeah. Out of 60? Yeah. That's crazy. That is just that is insane. And I think the average nationally is about 5.5 per game. So I guess it's not that crazy, but at the same time, this was supposed to be a Notre Dame team that was a little bit more driven by its offense. And and they have playmakers. You know, they, they recruit at the same talent level as Michigan. It's, it, I'm sure this season will be looked back a little bit as a transitional season for Notre Dame just because their defense didn't have that many pieces, but the offense did. You know, the offense, we talked about all the different receivers they have. Very, very quiet night for, for the Fighting Irish. I think, I think Michigan's defensive team speed, you know, the mental discipline, the, the NFL caliber talent, I think that's still being built back up from, from previous seasons. But, yeah, I think the speed was on full display. And I think it's, I mean, you know who's still on the schedule. I think right. there, there will be a game where that's a really relevant right. component uh, in, terms of, in terms of pulling off that win. So uh, that's something else that's sticking out to me. Last takeaway, what's, what's still on your mind about this game? Well, still, I mean, to go even to continue on your point a little bit, think about this. So Claypool had two for 42. McKinley had two for 42. Both of Claypool's catches were circus, to his credit, amazing grabs that were both probably covered about as well as you could. Both of McKinley's catches were on the junk drive at the end of the game for a touchdown. So you're, as far as like strictly at receiver, you're basically talking... Yeah, I mean that's it cuz everyone all their other receptions were by tight end or running back. So you're basically saying at receiver they gave up two grabs to two circus grabs to Claypool the entire game. I mean that's on nine targets by yeah, the way. Yeah, that's 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 impressive. I don't care how you cut that. That could, you, that's an impressive number against any team. You know, let alone a team as talented as Notre Dame. So Yeah, I mean that's a that team speed, I think Daxon Hill also kind of plays a big role in that. It hasn't shown up in the box score yet for him, but when you see him out there, it's just it's evident. You know, Ambry Thomas, another one who's strictly speed speaking, is is lightning fast. Uche, I mean, they do have a lot of big time athletes in the defense. Uh, my other takeaway, really, is is I like I just I like it when the three star guys do really, really well. And one guy, I'd say one guy who's, who's always gotten way too much flack, in my opinion, is uh, Jay Harbaugh. 
as far as Michigan at running back, the effect. I mean, he coached Michigan's first thousand yard rusher in Higdon, and I don't know how long it'd been since what Toussaint, I believe, was yeah, the last yeah. one before that. Uh, Charbonnet is Denard, Denard technically, right. but yeah, Charbonnet back, yeah. looks like the best freshman back in the country right now, and and is yeah, like you said, what second in the in the conference in touchdowns, and really, and mm-hmm. yeah didn't play what two games pretty much that he was either, either, you know, not a factor because of game scenario. We talked about Wisconsin and then sat out against somebody in there. Like, did he not play against Rutgers? I don't know. He, he's I, been either way. I thought he played every game, but it was under 10 right. carries right. and very right. limited. Yeah. And then you talk about a guy like Hassan Haskins who, yeah, looking back, it's kind of funny because he was recruited at running back, switched to linebacker, Back at running back, you see him now, and you think, "Why? How? Do, why would they? Have, why did they switch him in the first place?" Especially when you look at how deep they look like they're at at linebacker right now, you kind of wonder. Right. At the same time, though, uh, props to Michigan's evaluations in a lot as offensively and defensively right now, because uh, a lot of the guys that are starring for them were guys that were sort of those take a shot type guys that people like to like throw a fit about when they're recruiting them, you know, whether it's even a, even a walk on like true Wilson, you know, is a, is a guy that basically Michigan felt like they were getting a scholarship level player when they, when they got him, uh, obviously he's under scholarship now, but at the time he was not Sainra still bell Haskins, Uche, Dwumfor, uh, I mean, you could go on. Metellus, uh, Quiddy Pay, Brad Hawk for three stars. Oh, Kalik Hudson. Hudson. Yeah. Uh, Hawkins, I think, was a borderline, if I remember right. Either way, though, I mean, you're talking about some of the better players on the team, like a, almost not a bulk of the con- contributors, I would say, but a lot more of them than I think people would would have anticipated. And and really, we talk about recruiting. It's in a lot of ways. What's maybe hurt Michigan more is a, a higher volume of the higher-ranked guys not panning out. I feel like if you mm-hmm. go down up and down the list the last three or four classes, they have struck on a lot of those mid-level three-star guys that they identified early or late. I mean, if we're talking about Haskins and Bell, those are both guys that Michigan kind of found, you know, sort of diamonds in the real true diamonds in the rough. Um, so... I mean, I expanded it a little bit, but credit due to, to, in my opinion, to Jay Harbaugh for, you know, Michigan all of a sudden, yeah, in a matter of three weeks, Michigan all of a sudden running back went from a massive, not a massive weakness, but just a, a, a position of major question mark. You consider Christian Turner struggling early with the fumbles and the blitz pickups. You know, him and Charbonnet were supposed to be the two guys, and all of a sudden you have two, two guys technically with four years of eligibility left who look like studs at the running back position. And now the the, mm-hmm. the future at that spot is brighter for Michigan than it's been since I can remember. I mean, and it, not to mention you add uh, a guy like, like Blake Corum to the mix next season who gives them a different dynamic than either of the other two guys. You know, you talk about Haskins and Charbonnet in particular. You know, Corum gives them a different dynamic from that spot as well. So, you know, props due to 
Jay Harbaugh, but also, like I said, the staff as a whole, a lot of really good evaluations that are really paying off for them in big spots. You know, Sainer still, again, another one, 73 catches or 73 yards, a touchdown, uh, you know, look like a guy out there, kind of the guy that we read about this spring or wrote about this spring, you know, as a guy that was going to make an instant impact in the offense. So that's one of my takeaways. It's, it's like every week, you know, it's becoming clearer and clearer that, I actually, I, I watch around college football, and it, sometimes it's kind of funny to me. I don't ever really post about it, but it's funny to me watching other teams around the country thinking how Michigan was really it, – it's not just that they offered the guys that are playing really well, but some of the guys who were, like, top-type targets for them have, like, really panned out at their respective programs. Like, I look at a guy like Isaiah Spiller at Texas A&M who's walked, in, walked into campus – down there and is their number one back and looks like a stud. I mean, he was a guy that Michigan loved. Or Jamar Chase at LSU looks like a first-round draft pick. Again, he was a highly rated guy, but a, a guy that Michigan, he was like a top two or three player on their board. You know, it's like, so I think the staff, It's that, that's, why, that's one of the reasons why I know when we start talking about the recruiting classes and stuff, why it's like maybe sometimes it sounds like we're being a little more optimistic across the board then maybe we should be in some of these situations. But I, I just the more you watch around college football and what we see with Michigan on the field and, and who's making plays for them and who's going to play in the pros off of this roster, you know, I just think there's there's confidence that they know how that they're that they actually do a really, really good job of evaluating not just the upper tier guys, but but some of those other guys that you know, you see those 86, 87, 88s in the recruiting classes and it feels like more and more of those guys are panning out for them, you know, and it just lends credence to the idea that they know what they're doing with their evaluations and know how to build a roster. Sure. Yeah. Do think there was some optimism before 2017 and 18 for Higdon and Evans. People felt pretty good about that duo, but still, well, but, but yeah, those for but them to... only had what one or two years, like these guys, like this is, yeah, like you said, these are two freshmen and they have another mm-hmm. top, well, I mean, I, I, I don't say it often. I, I think uh, Corum is not ranked nearly high enough. I mean, there are guys I feel like should get a bump, but Corum is a guy who I think is a top 150 at least. We have him like just at the tail end of the top 24-7. Um, I guess it's not, maybe, I don't know, maybe not the optimism per se from the position, but just the future is, the foreseeable future is brighter than it's ever been. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we could. Yeah, and Christian yeah. Christian Turner is a redshirt freshman too, so it's. Not... Oh, this is not forget about him. No, because he actually looked good yeah. when he came, he looked good when he came in, as well. I think for him, I think it's just gonna be a matter of. It's ironic. I think I think actually just running the football is the easy part for him. I think it's as as the season's shown, hanging onto the football and being an asset and pass protection are the two you know, biggest mm-hmm. things for him to, to find his way back onto the field. But obviously there's a clear top two now. I mean, um, is Haskins, somebody compared on our board, I, th- I was our board or I saw that compared Haskins to like a faster Devion Smith. I, I He's faster. He's mm-hmm. faster than Devion Smith. There's no doubt about that. I don't know. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he's quite the pinball that Smith was though. I, I'll tell you what though, you talk right. about that play. Yeah, there was what about five minutes left in the third quarter after Notre Dame had scored that long run. He, that first hit he took about 20, 25 yards downfield, that immediate burst that he had 
after breaking free, that was really impressive. I mean, that's that's that you can't teach kind of stuff. That's just athleticism, straight up athleticism. So, yeah, it's weird, man. Three weeks ago, we were barely talking about him. Now he's he looks like a guy who's got one of the higher ceilings of any player on the roster, you know. And so, um, I don't know. That was a, it's it's been pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, him and Cam are grown. If Michigan can figure out how to identify these players a few games sooner as players who need to get on the field, uh, you wonder. But anyway, let's jump into questions. Uh, first one comes from Chad Smeaton. We kind of discussed this. or No, we didn't discuss this one. Have Harbaugh and Warner taken back the majority of the Michigan offensive play calling from Gaddis? The last two games sure tend to look that way. I don't... N- neither of us know. I tend to not think so. I know people are pointing to the to the pin and pull and some of the 2018 running sets. Those were there earlier on in the season. They just weren't using them as much. They were. It seemed like Middle Tennessee especially, it seemed like they were just trying a whole bunch of different things. Like I don't think this offense looks philosophically different than it did the first part of the season. I just think they're... They're just trying fewer things. They're focusing on the the stylistic approaches that they're good at. And lo and behold, the roster that <laughs> the roster that won ten games in twenty eighteen is pretty good at some of those offensive sets. It I think I'm sure it's a little bit more collaborative. I'm sure they they if I'm speculating, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised, I should say, if Gaddis is being more there's a little bit more delegation and a little bit more collaboration because, again, he's 36. He's a first-time play caller. Uh, it's that's a that's a high. There's a reason Michigan doesn't have too many first-time play callers call plays, is that it's a very high stakes, high pressure situation, and the talent is enough at all the positions that you can see it in practice to be like that will work, that will work, that will work. When in games, only maybe one out of the three things will work. So. I doubt. I don't think they've handed the wheel off to anybody. I would not be surprised if there's more collaboration, but this is none of this is stuff that didn't occur in the first five games of the season. They're just highlighting the things that they're good at, which any any smart team would do. I mean, you're only going to put the square peg in the round hole so many times before you say, "Okay, fine, you know, we'll we'll do some tweaks," because because the bottom line is. Everyone, no matter who's calling the plays, they all want to win football games. So, I don't know, Steve. I, I didn't. I don't get the sense that it's a, you know, that the play calling duties have been handed off. I just think that maybe the game planning duties have become more collaborative. That's how I'd answer that. What that's do you think? Exactly, I was just gonna say. I think that's maybe more of a Monday to Thursday deal than it is an actually on on Saturday type thing. As far as actually calling the plays, I suspect that it's still Gaddis. But yeah, I mean, you know. What do we say? You know, that Michigan had a... Their offense was pretty good last year, right? It wasn't great, but it was pretty good, and there were some things that they did really, really well last year. The fact that they're maybe leaning back on a lot of that stuff, particularly in the running game, is, you know, logically would say you're sitting out in the film room thinking, hey, like, maybe, yeah, we need to get back to... You know, because, again, you saw what... Having a running game, I mean, granted, they only had to throw the ball 12 times, but you think about plays, like I remember uh, the throw, not the touchdown, but Patterson's last throw to Sainer still, 
how open he was. That looked like a lot of what Michigan was able to get last year, where, you know, run the ball, run the ball successfully, and then all of a sudden you got a guy who's got nobody within 10, 15 yards. It kind of reminds me of a lot of the easy grabs that Jake Butt used to get, like out in the flat, on the, the deep flat, you know, after they'd run the ball a few times. And that's what they that's what they, that's sort of the identity they've had before under Harbaugh. So, but no, as far as the play calling, I suspect that everything is probably still the same, but I do. I think it's more of a Monday to Thursday game plan. What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? Type deal. Cuz now they have a what, more than half a season's worth of film to to look at and say, "Okay, mm-hmm. you know, this is working, this is working, this isn't working. This is working. Let's stick to Let's stick to that stuff. Yeah. All right, next one comes from Aaron Stoltenberg, who says, is Indiana on the road a more worrisome game than MSU at home? Uh, I know you mentioned earlier on in the show that MSU looks as beatable as ever. There's still a part of me, maybe it's just the way things have gone the past 13, 14 years, that thinks D'Antonio will get something something from his team in that in that game but I do think the way Penn State beat Michigan State at home when Michigan State was coming off of a bye I mean it's just a team that some of the some of the cornerstones that they wanted to lean on have regressed and then some of the things that they were hoping to get more out of have not progressed and so yeah it's a team that took a step back uh, that was seven and six last year, mind you, and took a step back. So it's, um, you know, that's that's just what I see. I, I haven't been able to watch all of every game, but they did not take the step forward. And some, and when you're an experienced team, there there can be a downside in that you don't have new blood, fresh blood. You don't have players who are going to provide the progression that aren't ascending. I, I've seen Michigan teams that were supposed to be super experienced that didn't necessarily progress. And so, yeah, I think Indiana's a little bit more more of a trouble spot. They're 6-2. and two. It's kind of a weak 6-2. and two. I think their only win over a team with a pulse is Nebraska, and you could, you could make an argument about them being considered a team with a pulse. That said, it's on the road. We've mentioned Michigan struggles on the road and why they why they struggle on the road. And Indiana's going to have a chance to build up some mojo. I know they they still have to still have to play Penn State, right? But it's but they they'll, they'll be able to pick up a couple wins the way the Big Ten's looking. So they might be in that eight and two, seven and three territory. By the time that game comes, and then suddenly, does Indiana have a crowd that is, you know, creates a little bit of a of a struggle for Michigan? I'm not saying that's going to happen for sure, but but right now, yeah, it looks like that Indiana game's a little bit more of a trap game than than Michigan State is, uh, based on location and based on the direction the two teams are going. Steve, I mean, yeah, history's the only reason. That there's this is even a question, isn't it? I mean, it, based on the way, 
A, how Michigan plays at home compared to on the road, and B, just how disinterested Michigan State looks. I mean, that I was stupid enough to actually pick Michigan State to win that game. Cause you, and that's why, because you keep waiting for something from them just because of history with like you know it's one of those deals where when the chips when the chips are down for them the most is when they usually respond or they pull sort of a rabbit out of their hat and and a game against Penn State who again I I think Michigan outplayed Penn State for the majority of that game you know it looked ripe for that that type of game for Michigan State to to pull that rabbit out of their hat but they just looked they did not look interested throughout the game at all and you got to wonder if they're going to what they'll muster up against Michigan I mean you do know that's what their whole season will come down to now that's always you know and that's been that way a lot you know that's the way that they've kind of it's the way that D'Antonio sort of built the program I think it's I think it was a smart strategy because you know if you if you get past Michigan you can build off of that and carry yourself the rest of the season that momentum but I think one of the interesting things is is Michigan. This is a late game in the season this year, and I mean this is the latest they've played Michigan State that I can ever remember. I mean, when's the last time they played Michigan State? In November, isn't it's almost always in October, isn't it? Let right. alone what second week of November, third week of November. So, you know, I I I'd have to say Indiana just because more of more about Michigan than Michigan State and the idea that yeah Michigan is has not proven they can play four quarters complete quarters on the road yet and they showed they can just they they can beat I mean Notre Dame's a better football team than Michigan State and Michigan just annihilated Notre Dame so you know again just going off of the context that we have you have to answer Indiana at this point Granted, we know Michigan State beat Indiana, but that game was in doubt until the very, very end. And, you know, Indiana's quarterback, what was he, like 30 for 35 or something? I mean, he just he shredded them apart defensively. So 33 for 42 for 286 yards and three touchdowns. Michael Penix there you Jr. Go. So, you know, I so I'd have to I – didn't, I did not think I would answer that this way, even after I saw the question. But I don't know. I just this does not look like the same Michigan State. You know, I know they went seven and six last year. They at least and and they did have a lot of injuries last year. But man, I mean, they've just not answered the bell. Their defense has not been, you know, has not been as good as what people advertised. I think Willicus has really kind of been a non-factor, at least in the last three or four games. Which, granted, you know, you're playing Wisconsin, Ohio State, Penn State. That's a rough stretch for any team but lost Arizona State we just talked about they struggled against Indiana it's not as if they've looked impressive you know I don't know if they've had a game all year where they've really looked super impressive outside of Western Michigan which you know whatever so yeah I don't know I'm gonna have to say Indiana though Michigan yeah just Michigan's different on the road until they prove otherwise against anybody with a pulse you know I think you have to say they're gonna have an easier time at home Uh, than they will on the road.
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Yeah, Indiana, for those curious, has a little bit of a Minnesota schedule. You know, they played Ball State, Eastern Illinois. They played Ohio State and lost by 41. Then they played UConn. So that's three automatic wins. Then they played at Michigan State, lost. Then beat up on Rutgers, barely beat Maryland, and barely beat Nebraska. And then they have Northwestern next week. So they'll be 7-2, and two, but it'll be kind of a, well, I assume they'll be 7-2, and two, but it might be kind of a, Softer 7-2. and two. Then they play Penn State, Michigan, and Purdue. Uh, credit to them for winning, but I'm not sure which of those games, maybe Nebraska, which of those games I would have predicted them to lose heading into the season. Uh, anyway, next question coming from Kevin DeHaven. He said, the way this team looks Saturday, it feels like things are starting to fall together. Do you think uh, Michigan gets through the season with no coaching changes? Something that has not happened in the Harbaugh era. That's an interesting question. I, I think I think it would be hard. It's really hard. Just like players are always going to transfer. Coaches are always looking for a better job. I don't I don't know. It kind it really depends on the Ohio State game. You know, because we I think everyone was fine with Michigan's offense until and Michigan's defense until they played Ohio State and lost and then I think suddenly everyone was like ah it's not good enough not good enough not good enough so so clearly that can change the perception but that is interesting that and that's one potential perk Steve that that we discussed in the summer about hiring all these coaches under 40 is that yes they're ascending yes at some point they'll want promotions either at Michigan or other schools but they're not necessarily one foot you know keeping they're not necessarily keeping the NFL on, you know, on hold or anything. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I don't really like to speculate, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, if they, if let's say they're, let's do realistic scenario. Let's say they're nine and three and they compete with Ohio state. I don't, I don't know which areas you're pointing at and saying, X coach or X position group needs to be needs to play better. I don't know. I think I think you could tentatively look at it that way. Easy, you know, not speculating is kind of weird with four games left. But it does seem like there's a little bit more stability in chemistry, more parts that fit together among the assistant coaches. Less less um, confusion. I never understood why Michigan made who's calling the plays such a ginormous secret. Or, or they said it was Harbaugh, but then it was like they would like constantly tiptoe the question publicly. It was always kind of weird. Uh, a little less weird this time around. I don't know, Steve. What do you think? I, I'm thinking there's no glaring... X position group or X component of this team needs to change. 
just yet. It's more of a, they got to figure out how to win on the road or else they're going to be kind of in the same spot every year. Yeah, I mean, any projected, in my opinion, at least as things stand now, any projected coaching change would be born out of an opportunity that arose for one of the current assistants. I don't think it's, you know, again, unless they come out, let's say against Michigan State or Indiana or Ohio State and lay a massive egg, you know, and, and then, you know, I don't know. next move I suspect is going to make it a strong New Jersey it's going to be a strong New Jersey flavor whatever they do whether it, I don't whether his brother is hired in as the head coach I suspect that's probably a long shot but a guy that could probably stay on the staff um, that's one of, again that's I just that's not speculate that's just me talking but you know there is that deep connection in that area for that family. So, uh, but again, that'd be a, what you would suspect is a, a rate, a higher, probably higher pay and a, and a raise in title. I would just, at the very least, right. In a, in a scenario like that. And, and that's where I, that's where I think any attrition from the, on the coaching staff would occur, would be a change in title, a raise in title and a raise in pay again, unless they completely lay an egg in the next, you know, three or four weeks, and then there's some discussions to be had. But until that happens, it's really hard to sit here and say, yeah, no, they're, they're going to let this guy go, you know, because they're going to have 120 total yards against Michigan State in two weeks and lose by three touchdowns. You know, it's like that's um, – that's I mean, that's the way I'd look at it. It's, it's – like you said, there are always going to be players who transfer, and there's always going to be – you know, you think about Alabama every year. Um, like, think of the coaching turnover that they go through every single offseason. It's really, it's it's crazy. Right. Even with the talent they have, it's crazy to think, like, how many coaches come and go through there. But when you have a guy like Saban, and, and honestly, I think that's one spot where there's a huge parallel between guys like Saban and Harbaugh. Because Harbaugh, you look at Harbaugh's coaching tree, it is large. Like, his assistants at Stanford, almost every one of his first his first coaching staff at Stanford, almost every one of those guys has either become a head coach or is very high in whatever they're doing. Is that a lot of times guys like that are I don't want to say they're used as like a stepping stone, but you know, if you can if you coach under a guy like some of these top coaches in the country and you prove your medal in whatever your position coach or whatever opportunities are going to come about like there's no doubt about that and that's what you see it happen a lot with Alabama right I mean well look what that's how Gaddis got his promotion and hiring at Michigan and that's how Loxley got the Maryland head coaching job after going like two and 34 as a head coach at New Mexico you know one good year calling plays at Alabama got him another head coaching job in the big in, let alone in the big 10 you know at a program that I think in Maryland that would have a high ceiling if they hired the right guy. So 
you know, again, you su- you succeed under a big name head coach, you're going to get opportunities. Just a question of who gets those opportunities, where they're at, and whether they're not whether they're worth taking or not. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. Real quick, just to tie tie up some loose ends. Of course, Don Brown. Everyone remembers he interviewed for the Temple job last year. Um, you know, is has he had it with the with the fans who were critical of him at Michigan? You know, it's all speculative. And then, uh, you know, Chris Partridge, I I think is someone I know. Don, Jim Harbaugh's even said Chris is someone who is ready to be a head coach, ready to be a defensive coordinator. Uh, I don't think he says that if he doesn't at least entertain the possibility that someone might be interested. Keep in mind, Jim McElwain was receivers coach last year. I know it was a pit stop job, but he seems to be doing a nice job in central Michigan. And does that, does that lead other schools in the area to peek at who else, who else might be a good fit from Michigan's program? But anyway, uh, yeah, not, not, not my favorite question just because we really don't know. I, I really don't even know if this season is going to be a failure or a success for Michigan yet. I don't think you can call it this early. Uh, anyway, next question. Are Harbaugh pressers... Oh, this one comes from JTOG, who says, Are Harbaugh pressers actually coach speak, or do we have to take them seriously now? Uh, and then also, we'll, we'll give this one two. Any word on why Tariq Black isn't getting on the field a lot? So for the first one, I assume he's referring to the offense hitting his stride. You know, I, I think it was coach speak and kind of deflecting a little bit I think I think he was calling it like he sees it though you know I think the fact that so many other players and assistants talked about how they felt the offense was close some more optimistically than others because it doesn't matter if it's close if it's if it's not there in games I think he was calling that one like he sees it I, I you know I I still think you can take I mean, take take anything as seriously as you want. The Harbaugh says. I, I don't think he. I don't think he lies that much. I think he really just. If if it's a short answer, then maybe he's he doesn't want to say the whole answer. If it's a such as I think we're hitting our stride in what way in every way, yeah. You know, I think that's him. Pretty much telling you he doesn't want to go into detail about it. And if he gives a longer answer, then. Then I think you can take that one to the bank. Uh, any anything to add for that one? No, I mean that's I've always felt like he's actually more open than people give him credit for. He's just, uh, it's, he's he's unique. There's no doubt about it. He's been different than he was in the pros, though. I do feel like he's been more even keeled. I don't know if you remember his last couple years in San Francisco where it was like he'd either either give a great presser or a horrible presser. And while his pressers, I wouldn't say, they're not among the best. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, He's been a lot more even keeled at Michigan than he was in San Francisco. I mean, that was one of the things I remember when he first got hired, kind of studying those a little bit, looking at him, like watching him. And I was like, man, this is going to be really interesting. You know, but, but he's been... A little more even keel, I think, than he was in San Francisco. All coaches are going it, to... It, it's as much about... You know, like, I kind of I kind of feel like, you know, for instance, the 
comments about the officiating after the Penn State game. We talked about this a little bit. I, I, so I look at stuff like that. That's a coach trying to deflect the criticism away from his players to protect his, you know, to put the focus somewhere else. And I think he does a pretty good job of doing that, actually, in a lot of instances, um, which I think that's a good thing for the program. Now, you know, we can talk about if it's a good thing or not. Makes it more difficult for us to, I don't know, give like good insight because they you know, sometimes he won't say a lot of stuff or he yeah it's a little bit of deflection. But I think it's good for the for the pro. It's the angle the program is always going to take is what's best for the program, not what's best for the people writing about the program. So I don't know. I don't think five hundred word press conferences where he says so little about so many topics. I don't think that does any. That doesn't help the program. You see other teams, other, I mean, Dabo talks extensively. You see Lincoln Riley's pretty insightful and talks extensively. Uh, Ed Ogeron is, is goofy and uh, I can barely understand him, but, you know, it's not like he's, he's not like he's like this, he's, I mean, it's not like he's keeping top secret files here. It's, I mean, Ryan Day's a, a really good press conference person. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I see where you're coming from where I don't think he's like, this awful pit like I, I understand the background behind everything he does i don't think you can say jim harbaugh attacks these pre- or goes about these press conferences because that's what's best for the program I, I i don't think it's productive i think it's just stylistically how he wants well to do it's it. not no i'm i'm talking about not every presser that he goes out for by the way all those coaches that you mentioned right now are like they're all like undefeated and have no like very little well maybe not Lincoln Riley anymore but the cr- but Jim's like this when they're undefeated too yeah I think he I think he tries to I think he tries to do what he can to keep any criticisms in-house and not create any more than what you know because the the press has a way again I, I you could we, this is where maybe we disagree here I think I just feel like nationally especially that Michigan is just covered so differently than most programs uh, I mean, where you have AP, you have sure. AP poll voters who still have Michigan ranked behind Notre Dame and Iowa. There is just one. But there is still, just one, the, and still, he's, he's like a complete I know, but, Yeah, Mark but, Wicker. But still, yeah. you get what I'm saying. I was like, is there another? There are only there are few programs in the country where that would ever even happen with anybody, jabroni or not. You know, and and uh, you know, I just I feel like. I feel like Michigan deals with more media manufactured distractions than almost any program in the in the country. And so I just I've always felt like there's a concerted effort to when when possible to deflect it in a different direction to limit it to the within the walls of you know Schembechler. I mean, that is, it's, I, don't, I think you understand what I'm getting at, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, like I said, you see, and not to mention, here's the other thing too, that may play into it as well. And I don't know if this is like a, not, don't want to go into this wormhole, but you know, Michigan's players, a lot of them very active on social media and read that. I'm sure it's got to come across whether it's by mentions or just them reading it or just seeing it or coming across it on their own. You know, is that there's that just perpetual, again, the whole kind of the go along the lines of the whole 
this is the biggest game of Jim Harbaugh's tenure at Michigan crap. You know, that was like, it's and it's going to pop up again in a few weeks, if not against Michigan State. Um, you know, like, and I, I think, at least from with what he can do, I think when the opportunity presents itself, i.e., the officiating against Penn State, another loss in a big spot against a tough team on the road, that kind of became the tenor coming out of that game. Not from every direction, because, yeah, a lot of it was sort of the same old as, you know, crapping on the program as a whole, like, you know, nationally, that type of stuff. But a lot of it did turn in, turn towards the officiating and his comments on the officiating after the game. So I just always felt like there's some effort, because he's, he's sort of like, he's the kind of guy who will take it and doesn't care about it. That stuff doesn't affect him, but he may, I suspect he knows that creating more issues for these 18 to 22 year old dudes is not to their benefit. So he can withstand a well, a ton more of it by maybe drawing more attention to himself. Again, like I said, like say doing something like complaining about the officiating to where he's like, I'll take the, I'll take it by sort of creating my own storyline to shift the focus away from the kids and put it on me. Cause I can handle it. I mean, I, I just, that's just a, I've always kind of felt like that's his method. And again, when the opportunity presents itself, not a week in, week out type deal, but when he can, I feel like that that's an, an angle or a direction that he's tended to go. And that's when I say it benefits the program, that's kind of what I mean is that it might not, it's not a direct benefit, but it's, they feel it'd be benefiting the program by keeping the kids out of the limelight as much as they can criticism wise and just putting it on Harbaugh instead. Okay. We disagree. I see a lot of coaches out there who do great in press conferences and on the field who don't need to, I mean, cause you can, you can be nice to your players without having to completely just shut down the press conference. And, you know, I honestly, it's deceptive to the fans. If you think about it, if saying, saying the offense is hitting its stride, you know, the reporters, yeah, it doesn't matter what answers we get, but we're the proxy to the public. we, we talk to the players and the coaches, and then we kind of convey what the story is. And, you know, if, if he's worried about Feinbaum or uh, Barrett Salee or, you know, who knows, whatever, whatever websites, they're never at the press conferences anyways. <laughs> so it's not, not really, that's not really what it's supposed to be. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about today, you know, he's asked about the confidence of the team. And he says, yeah, there's confidence. And then that's it. And it's like, okay, well, great, great message for your program. But anyway, we're getting off track. Back to the question. Uh, yeah, I think you can take most of it seriously. It's just, you know, if, if, if he says short answers, that usually means, and I think Steve and I are in agreement on this one, that usually means he is not wanting to expand because he doesn't have a full concrete answer on it. Anyway, uh, next question Let's do let's do this one. This one's for me. Oh wait, no, no, no. We got the Tariq Black one. Uh, I have no idea. I, I Ronnie Bell's been better than expected, you know. And then then you have Tariq or Nico Collins has been very good, and Donovan Peoples Jones is probably too good to put on the bench. So I guess he's just fourth, and they don't play a ton of four receiver sets. My thought. I don't That's know. My thought. I don't I mean, know. I, I, yeah. How do you say he's not hasn't you know? That there aren't that those three would not would you not put those three guys ahead of him right now on the depth chart if you're, you know it's like 
is this is this still is again i feel like a question like that is still more of the people just refuse to believe that ronnie bell is that good like he's been their best receiver week in and week out all season long he's obviously one of the top three you know and so with with black yeah you'd have to how do you not look at it and think he's probably the fourth the fourth guy right now doesn't mean he still won't participate or you know and can't make an impact he was on the field quite a bit it's not like he wasn't like he didn't play at all on Saturday. He was out. He was out there, but again, it's a game. You threw the ball twelve times. So you had six six completed passes, all game. <laughs> Half of them to Sane Rastill, who again, much like Bell, a beneficiary of the attention, particularly and even more so now with with Collins and Peoples Jones being out there. Sane Rastill definitely going to be the guy that teams the defense is maybe not going to ato- uh devote as much attention to as the other two guys. And so it's up to him to take advantage of his, you know, that's the way we talked about bell before the season was that we thought he could, he'd have, he was going to have a wealth of opportunities because so much attention was going to be paid to the other guys. And so, you know, so that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really not even a knock on black at all. I think, I still think he's got something in him. I think he can still be a, contributor and, and a guy that can do some things for him it's just when the opportunity presents itself you got to take advantage I mean I feel like he's dropped a couple pretty key passes in the in the chances and the opportunities that he's gotten and but I don't know how much that's affected his snap count though I mean we don't get the snap counts anymore but I feel like he was out there a decent amount I just I wouldn't look I mean Saturday not really a game to talk about the you know the distribution of passes or you know the receivers I mean it was a yeah, six completed passes. So let's give it a couple more weeks, see where he's at, and, and go from there. But, yeah, so so far yeah. I feel like, he ha- A, he hasn't taken advantage of the opportunities that he's had, and, B, you know, yeah, the team's top three receivers are Collins, Peoples-Jones, and Bell. I don't care how you cut it. So Yeah. Worthy question, though, because he did have 191 receiving yards in – four september games and in four october games he has 50 sure receiving yards so it, there definitely was a drop off maybe he's dinged up maybe it's people's jones being healthier and he really is the, the first one out if ronnie bell doesn't play at maryland which harbaugh did not seem to rule that possibility out it will be worth watching but you know some, sometimes players just are having better weeks than other players and it's not not crazy and outlandish to think that Tariq Black isn't necessarily ready to have 800 receiving yards in a season. He's on pace for about 400, so it's not like this is some some schmuck who's getting riding pine the whole time. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I uh, wouldn't wouldn't read into it to the to that much. And I also, you know, be open minded to the fact that other players could be really good. Josh Ross suddenly does not have a spot, even if he is healthy, in this linebacker core. Yeah, I know. Sometimes, sometimes there are just new players that come up and look really good. Um, I, I, know, I, Ronnie Bell. I mean, that's what, like, yeah. you know, like I said, I think we, I know, I picked Bell as my sleeper before the season, but I think he's outperformed even what I thought he would. 
you know, so. All right, Terry Boatwright, this one can be quick, and then we have, then we have the two other ones. Uh, does, does Vincent Gray still get the start after how he was picked on by Notre Dame? Uh, I don't know. They completed, what, nine of, of a jillion passes? What, what am I missing here, Steve? Was he notably bad uh, he was, against he Notre was Dame? He was the corner that yielded the last touchdown of the game in that on that junk drive. But otherwise, I mean, he wasn't covering Komet. He wasn't covering... Right. That's what we said. McKinley had two catches for 42 yards. Both of them were on that last drive of the game. And we talked about the only other two receptions that Notre Dame had at receiver were from Claypool, both on circus catches, and one of which was Ambry Thomas was definitely the guy in coverage on that play. So, mm-hmm. I, I is Vincent Grace starting? I think he's. I mean, he's the third. He's their third corner still. I don't know right. if he was on the field to begin the game or not. I mean, he played plenty of snaps, but I, are we? It's just an odd game to pick on a pick on the cornerback play when we just got done talking about how they had one receiver of any had any catches of consequence in the game and both of them were like highlight reel like NFL like grabs. Uh, right. Yeah. No. I mean, I guess if if the coaches think that you know him giving up a touchdown catch to Javon McKinley with like forty eight seconds left in the game is worth sitting him next week, then I guess we'll find out. I. I I suspect he's going to play as as he has. I mean, he's been their third corner all year. He's gonna they're going to need a third corner. I don't see how I don't see where this game changes their outlook on him. I mean, unless I'm missing okay, yeah, unless I'm missing something. I mean, yeah. The only thing I can think of is if DJ Turner, you know, the freshman I know they're excited about, if he really ascends. I know he's been dinged up. I maybe they take a look at because I think he's played in what one game, two games. I I'm guessing no. Sorry, sorry, Terry. I I hope hope we're answering this the way you were, you wanted, but I I'm guessing his status is unchanged. He's got a couple games to figure things out, or he's got a game and then he's got a bye week. I don't anticipate Brian Lewerke being able to pick on, um, pick on Vincent Gray the way. Ian Book and his receivers can. Maybe Indiana's something to keep an eye on. I just, I don't, I don't think his status has changed. I don't think that's a major thing Michigan is freaking out about after beating Notre Dame by 31. Yeah, I did. we wasted yeah. too much time answering that question. <laughs> All right, next, we got two more, two quick ones. They're, they're more hypotheticals, but, or not hypotheticals, uh, big picture. Steve, was this Michigan's best win of the decade? And so while you ponder that, some of the other highlights really been kind of a bleak decade for Michigan football in terms of in terms of big wins. They they had a, you know they're going to finish with above five hundred record. They're going to finish with, um, I don't know, at least six or seven seasons of eight wins, three seasons, four seasons of ten wins. But at the same time, one win over Ohio State, and it was a pretty depleted Ohio State. It's two, maybe, or I'm sorry, three, maybe four wins over Michigan State. Uh, you know, a couple, couple wins over Notre Dame. A two bowl wins, depending on. I guess it depends on when this year's bowl game is and if Michigan wins or not. But 
You know, I think that the Sugar Bowl win over Virginia Tech, I guess, is a candidate under the lights 2011 because of the way that it happened is a candidate, although that Notre Dame team did not uh, end up being amazing, if I, if memory serves. The Wisconsin win, Michigan's only other top 10 win of this decade in 2016, could be up there. Maybe maybe 2016 against Michigan State, just because it snapped a little bit of that skid. <laughs> Steve, I mean, you know, there's still... A, Obviously, the one, the game coming up in a few weeks against Ohio State, that would trump this. But thirty-one points over Notre Dame when they're a top ten team, when there's when there's mounting criticism, you know, I I think that is the win of the decade. It's it's kind of weird because the context of it happening, there isn't really Big Ten titles or postseason aspirations. But if you factor in quality of opponent, quality of win significance of win I think it might be what do you think I mean you laid out all the other ones I I think yeah given the context of where the program's at how much they needed this win uh, it's and the way they won it different than Wisconsin I I, you you could argue the Penn State in the same season Mm -hmm. because that was a game where it's to look back and think that that same Penn State team would win the Big Ten is is crazy when you consider Michigan probably could have put up 70 points in that game if they'd wanted to. I mean, I think they, I think right. they pulled their starters halfway through the third quarter. Um, I, I'd have to I'd have to go with this game. Not just in who they beat, but how badly they beat them and just how impressive they looked. I mean, that's one of the more impressive Michigan wins on a big stage I mean, you can go further back than a decade. I mean, that's, you know, we'll see how Notre Dame finishes out. But, you know, that that was, again, I keep going back to the fact that Notre Dame easily, easily could have beat Georgia in Georgia. You know, I don't, I don't think this is a Notre Dame team that's going to roll over. I mean, they may now with nothing to play for, but. I was going to say, if they, if they lose a couple more games, maybe it loses some of the steam. Uh, one other candidate that, that is relevant is how badly they beat Florida in the Citrus sure. Bowl. Um, you know, it's I'm sure Michigan fans don't want to sit there and say the Citrus Bowl win over a 20th ranked Florida team <laughs> is the win of the decade, but it it was kind of in terms of big stage, it was a bleak decade for Michigan football. Um, it, I don't I don't think there's anything there's very little to argue it. Uh, you know, I'm, um and as you mentioned, yeah, 11 years they were one and twenty-one against top ten opponents up until Saturday, and they were one since two thousand ten. They were one and uh, one and twenty, I believe, against as an as an underdog. I don't know if they technically finished as an underdog. So yeah, this is a significant win, and you know if you're a Michigan fan, you like are trying to humble yourself. I mean, you can do whatever you want, but don't feel like you have to humble yourself. It's it's a big win. <laughs> A lot of people thought Michigan was going to lose. And so, and they, they didn't just win, they they kind of sent a message. And and we mentioned the context of the response. And with that, our final question, and then we'll then we'll get out of here. Do is Okay. I'm going to try to ask this. I my roommate asked me this the other day. He said, "Do you think that there is a chance Michigan can imp- continue improving and beat Ohio State?" 
I, as a rule, I don't like to rule things out. Uh, that's a that's a good way to look foolish and wrong. I think I think it's not out of the question. They have to improve a lot, though. I mean, they really have to start. That passing attack probably needs a couple games where they're really just striking fear into opponents, or else Ohio State will just stack the box and make Shea Patterson beat them on November 30th. I think the defense, if they can avoid big plays for three more games, then I think you can believe that they've made the the improvements. They've made the progress. But we mentioned defensive speed seems better. I think the pressure against good offensive lines this season is better than last season. I think the rushing attack is about the same, and the passing attack looks just a, just a hair better. And so does the offensive line, does the... Does the big play defense, you know, there's a couple couple things still. But they do get them at home, and Michigan showed this weekend that they are they can be a different kind of beast at home. They're now 28-4 and four in home games under Harbaugh. Granted, 0-2 against Ohio State. But I don't know. If, they, if they're going to improve this much over one month, if they can do that again, I think there's a chance. I don't know if I'd pick it. I think there's a chance. What do you think? I mean, we we saw Wisconsin beat or Wisconsin lost thirty eight seven to Ohio State, which Wisconsin doesn't look the same as it did when when they played Michigan, but that's that's pretty bad. I mean, this is this is a team that might have the most dangerous player on offense and defense in the entire country. Uh, so, Steve, what do you what do you think? They have four weeks. I mean, is there even? I mean, I guess handicap the possibility for us. What are what are you seeing? I, I maybe I'm the the weird one. I I I think they definitely have a shot. I just I think here's the thing. At Rutgers, at Northwestern, at Nebraska, at Indiana, those are Ohio State's away games this season until they go to Ann Arbor. They've get they've gotten they get everybody that's any good at home. They mm-hmm. play Penn State the week before Michigan. The thing is, and I actually so the and the, part of my reasoning is I thought that Ohio State was going to blow Wisconsin out. So the fact that they did does not really change my perspective at all, because there mm-hmm. was finally a team. Michigan got punched in the mouth early and never recovered, and and Wisconsin to me was still a one dimensional like to see did never had any faith that Jack Cohn was going to go into Columbus and light the Buckeyes up because you knew that they were going to, that yeah, you said, and this will apply to Michigan is they're going to need to throw. That's the one thing is that the passing attack, we're going to have to see more of it in the next three or four weeks for me to think that mm-hmm. Michigan has a legitimate chance, but th- this game every year, and this is the one, there are two things I've been in. Well, the one thing I've been most impressed with for Ohio state actually is, is their offensive line. Now, you know, Fields and, and Young, who Young's probably the best player in college football. I mean, there's just no doubt. I mean, the way he played on Saturday was insane. I mean, is a haven't seen a guy he's he's a guy that are like you're the mom or dad or the mom who like doesn't watch football much could sit down and watch that game and see that even when he wasn't the guy making the tackle or the sack <laughs> was impacting the way that Wisconsin had to run their offense. So yes. Two, you really could say three because Dobbins could be the best back, one of the two or three best backs in the country. 
as well. Not just Fields mm-hmm. and not just Chase Young. Just, but up front, and this is where Ohio State. This is it's always been my opinion that the biggest reason Ohio State has dominated Michigan the last however many years is because they always seem to win the battle up front. Ohio State's offensive line almost always, almost always. You know, 16 was kind of the outlier where Michigan had like 20 tackles for a loss or something, like eight sacks or something. I think athletically, Michigan's defense is starting to really – you talk about how much fa- – like they're fast and how they're really starting to round into form. They're different defensively than they have been the last couple seasons, in my opinion. It, it just They are. They're quicker. They look faster. I think they can give Ohio State problems. I just – I want to see what – Ohio State, and again, they this may not happen to them. I mean, they've looked that good so far, but I want to see what happens when Fields makes a mistake, or when he's, or when he, right. or when he's, <laughs> or when he's hit in the mouth. You know, like mm-hmm. legit hit and put into the ground a couple times. I want to see how he reacts. You know, and that's and they have not had to. They've really not had to deal with that yet. I think Michigan State actually their front four played really well for like about a quarter, and then Wisconsin's front four played well. For about a quarter, and then Michigan, then Ohio State's offensive line really started to take over the game, and that's why I think really that I think they've been the catalyst for this for a lot of what Ohio State has done. Because Fields, much like you think about Michigan's game against Ohio State last year, where I don't even think Haskins was touched by a Michigan defender the entire game, Fields is getting that same amount of time. Not just to get outside the pocket and make plays with his feet, but when he does just sit back in the pocket, he's had oodles of time. So mm-hmm. I think they're I don't think there's any team in college football that's unbeatable this year. I, I, Ohio State, I don't I mean I, I don't I don't know who would you have as number one right now? Would you have Ohio State as number one? I would put Ohio State number one. Yeah. I think they're just a little bit more complete. Because LSU ends up in some of these shootout games, and I get a little... I mean, Ohio State, yeah, they have to do it on the road against a team with a pulse. Just who, um, but, but, and I'm not... Again, I would I, I would probably have Ohio State two. I just... LSU has probably beaten three, four better teams than anybody that Ohio State's beaten. We look at Wisconsin, who, mm-hmm. again, they just lost to Illinois. They Wisconsin actually looks... A lot like what Michigan's problem has been. They look like world beaters at home and mm-hmm. can't do squat on the road, right? I mean, that yeah. that's, again, Illinois, again, I know Illinois beat Purdue, and Illinois actually looks like they have something going on. But, I, I like I said, I, I expected Ohio State to blow Wisconsin out. So I'm not, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not all in saying that they're going to just, that Michigan has no shot in that game. You know, I... If it was in Columbus, yeah, I'd, I don't think Michigan yeah, would have a shot. Yeah. But Michigan's been tough at; they've been great at home. They've been different at home. So until then, I just I don't know. I, I feel like Michigan matches up with them, like on defensively at least. I think Michigan matches up with them better, definitely better than anybody they've faced so far, for sure. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah, we'll see. I like that discussion, though. It's a good time to have it. I mean, Michigan coming off a great win, Ohio State obliterating Wisconsin. I think it's a good time to have this conversation. Because the thing is, here's the thing. I think Ohio State is going to blow Penn State out, too. Because I just don't – it's it's in Columbus, and I'm still not that sold on Penn State. I mean, they – you know, mm-hmm. I, 
I don't know. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if if you're listening to this, and you think it's just Looney Tunes, go back to after the Wisconsin game and ask, do do you think Michigan has a good chance of going nine and two in the, its first eleven games, beating Notre Dame by thirty one, beating Michigan State, and coming a drop pass away from tying Penn State on the road, plus a win over Iowa. If you thought that was, I mean, I think a lot of people thought that was Looney Tunes. And so credit to Michigan. They're two-thirds of the way through the season. Uh, not where they want to be at 6-2. and two, But I do think in the context of things, it could have been a lot worse. And there is, there is credit due when a team responds like that to having their title. Title aspirations stripped away. It's all about pride and rivalries and winning football because you like to win football now. So, and they did that. Done it once. We'll see what they can do this week at Maryland. Uh, We'll have the preview for that in just a couple days. But for Steve Lorenz, I'm Zach Shaw. This has been the Wolverine 24-7 Podcast. Hope you had fun. Hope you learned something. Check out all of our stories at themichiganinsider.com and michigan.247sports.com. And we will see you later on this week.